Amen. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Amen. Amen. Turn with me in your Bible tonight, if you would, to the little letter of, uh, I should say the little letter to Philemon. That's going to be in your New Testament between the book of Titus and the book of Hebrews, sandwiched in there so short that if you're not careful, you'll miss it. The book of Philemon, and this will be our, Lord willing, our last look at this little postcard epistle. The book of Philemon. I can remember the story of every single scar on my body. Except for this one. I've got this weird little indention beside my left eye. I think my parents probably dropped me on my head when I was little, which would explain a lot. But other than that one, I don't know what the origin of that is, but every other scar on my body, I can remember vividly how I got it. I had a dog. My dog, Tuffy, scratched me between my knuckles, and somehow it scarred. I closed, I've got a scar on my pinky finger where I closed a yellow-handled case knife on my finger at a flea market. I had a real classy upbringing. I've got a scar on my back from chicken pox. I've got a scar on my knee from a really, really grisly bike accident. And I can remember all of the stories of how I got all of those scars. And you probably can too. Look at your hands or your legs in different places and remember this event or this accident or that surgery or whatever the case might be. But I want you, as we begin this evening, I want you to take a moment. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to think a little bit deeper than just surface tissue. And I want you to think deeper than your skin. And I want, to think about, I want you to think about the scars you carry on your heart. The scars on your soul. I want you to think about the people that have lied to you. I want you to think about the people that have used you. I want you to think about the way that you've been abused, cheated, cheated on, the way people have taken from you what didn't belong to them. I want you to think about how maybe you've been scabbed and scarred by other people's sins. How you've been formed, deformed, transformed by how other people have treated you. Because the truth is that all of us have been hurt, haven't we? All of us have been sinned against. You can look up here at me. All of us have been used and all of us have been abused and all of us have been misused. We've all been formed, deformed and transformed by other people's sin. In fact, for some of us... The most notable events of our lives are not our own successes, but the way other people have failed us. Some of us have been hurt deeply in life. And some of us are angry about it. Maybe justifiably so. But maybe some of us have let that anger turn into something that has taken control of us. Maybe we're bitter. Maybe we can't seem to let it go. Maybe we really, really would like to be able to go back before it all happened, but we just can't seem to recapture that. How do we forgive? And how do we find freedom from the bondage of broken relationships? That's what the book of Philemon is about. And it's what we're going to read about tonight as we study this book from the perspective of the man who was cheated, the man who was robbed, the man who was sinned against. Philemon. The man who has to learn to be free 
from broken relationships. Let's read about Philemon together. Verse number one, the word of God says, Paul, the author, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. You really can't avoid this, can you? You really can't avoid being sinned against. Look at Philemon verse number 1. The Apostle Paul begins this little letter in a remarkable way. He gives us a sketch of the victim. He introduces us to something about the nature of the man who's being cheated and sinned against. The Bible describes Philemon in this way in verse number 1 as a fellow worker with the Apostle Paul. A fellow worker. Think about what that means. In fact, I didn't notice this until I just read it a second ago. That's the same expression that he uses in verse number 24 to talk about Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. Fellow workers. Two of those guys in verse number 24 wrote books of the Bible. And Paul uses the same designation to talk about Philemon as he does to talk about Mark and Luke. Because Philemon was the kind of guy who would share in work with the Apostle Paul. Thank God for people like Philemon. He's not just the kind of person who looks and says, you know, somebody ought to really do something about that. He's not just the kind of person who sees the need. He's not just the kind of person who sees the problem and complains about it. But he steps in and he works. Philemon is a fellow worker. But notice what else Paul says about him in verse number 2. The Bible says that Paul greets the church in Philemon's house. 
So we talked about this a few weeks ago, but Philemon was a wealthy man. And for the first several hundred years of the history of the church, churches did not meet in buildings like ours, but they met in the homes of people who had large enough homes to host a crowd. Philemon was one of those people, and so the church met in Philemon's house. But think about what that means. That means that every single Saturday, Philemon had to clean the bathrooms. But, y'all know how it is, he had to make sure it didn't look too clean to think that everybody, so that everybody wouldn't think, you know, he just cleaned the bathrooms because we're coming over. Every single weekend, he had to make sure that they had plenty of cheese and plenty of crackers, had to make sure that the house was vacuumed, had to make sure that everything was ready because the church made in his home. And that means about Philemon that he could not do in his walk with the Lord what a lot of us do in our walk with the Lord. He couldn't compartmentalize. He couldn't put church over here and family and home over here and work over here and the rest of life over here because church and family and home, it was all wrapped up together, right? Philemon couldn't compartmentalize. Philemon, the Bible says in verse number 7, was a man who brought joy and comfort from his love for Paul and refreshed the heart of the saints. He refreshed the heart of the saints. He was an encourager. He was a kind of person who lifted other people up. Nobody is ever going to accuse me of that, all right? But that's the kind of person that Philemon was. He was the kind of person that was a joy to be around. When you were around Philemon, it just felt like, man, your steps got a little bit lighter. It felt like the burden was removed off of your shoulders. Philemon was just the kind of person that God's people like to be around. Listen, my wife does not even talk to me the way Paul's talking about Philemon right here. He's saying the most incredibly kind things about Philemon. He's saying to him, Philemon is the kind of person that everybody loves. He helps people. He works hard. He's an encourager. He takes his faith so seriously. The church is at his house every Lord's Day worshiping together. He refreshes the saints. You know, there are some people that when they call you, you see their name come up on the screen. And you think, oh boy. And then there's some, you see their name on the screen, you think, oh boy. Well, Philemon was the former. You saw him calling and said, yes, man, I can't wait to talk to him. But, but notice this. As good as he was, as much as he loved the Lord, as much as he was encouraging to other people, as hard as he worked with Paul for the gospel, Philemon was still sinned against. Even though Philemon was a good man, who it seems treated people well, that did not mean that everybody treated Philemon well. Now sometimes we go through life, right? And we think that if we are good to other people then that's a guarantee that they're going to be good to us. It's not true. It's simply not true. The Word of God shows us example after example of people who did their best to do the right thing and were still treated horribly by people who were close to them. Abel, Genesis 4, is murdered by his brother for the way that he worshipped. Joseph is betrayed by his brothers for his faithfulness and then falsely accused and imprisoned because he tried to maintain his sexual purity. And you can find story after story after story like that culminating in the story of the Lord Jesus himself. Nobody surely has ever treated people better than Jesus treated them. And yet how did people treat Jesus? I want to tell you this evening that you cannot avoid, you cannot avoid being sinned against. You cannot avoid it. It's going to happen to all of us. 
In different ways, yes, and to different degrees. But all of us are going to be sinned against. You simply cannot avoid it. What I want to warn you about is the danger that can happen when we are sinned against. And that is, we can fail to give the kind of love God expects us to give to other people because of how we've been hurt by somebody else. Because we're afraid that somebody else will take advantage of us the way this other person did. We're afraid to be kind to another slave because Onesimus cheated us. We can be rude, distant, and fail to fellowship as believers with people that really have done nothing to us because others have been unfaithful to us. But hear me today. The Bible calls us to love one another. And it doesn't seem to put a lot of conditions on that. And so you cannot avoid this. I think that's the first lesson we need to learn from Philemon tonight. The second lesson I would give you is this. You can't fake this. You can't fake this. The Bible tells us that Onesimus, the runaway slave, has not only ran away from Philemon, in a sense stealing himself, but he's also stolen something, it seems, of some kind of value. Verse number 18. And we don't know really if that is, you know, a hundred bucks, a thousand bucks, ten thousand bucks or more. We don't know how much it's worth. But I want you to see that there is an actual tangible value to this sin. In fact, it's not just a sin, but it's a crime. But understand when I say this to you, Onesimus had sinned against Philemon, okay? It's not just like they had a minor disagreement over a difference of opinion. It's not just that somebody kind of got their feelings hurt. There's an actual sin that has occurred, Okay? Paul wants to see that sin forgiven, and he wants to see the relationship restored. But you see in verse number 8, and you see in verse number 14, that the Apostle Paul does not want Philemon to fake forgiveness. Look at verse 8. Accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. In other words, Philemon, you know that I am an apostle, right? And you know how this works. You know, I could just tell you, Philemon, take Onesimus back, forgive the debt, and set him free. And I could wield my apostolic authority like a hammer and force you to do what I think you ought to do. Verse number 14. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent. Paul says, I could have just kept Onesimus with me and put him to work for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. What Paul doesn't want to happen is he doesn't want Onesimus to go back to Philemon's house and for Philemon to welcome him back, but only superficially. And say, hey, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. It's okay. And yet in the inside, still be seething. And yet in the inside, underneath the facade of love, still be filled with rage and anger. That is what Paul wants to avoid. He wants to avoid fake forgiveness. And he wants to see Philemon's heart changed. And I think it would be good for us tonight to think about how we fake forgiveness. We can fake forgiveness... Well, just by not offering anything at all, right? Somebody hurts us and we just, we waller in it. Stew in it. 
Never let it go. Carry it and just burn with anger. Now we know that doesn't honor God, but sometimes it feels really good, doesn't it? Give ourselves over to that feeling of entitled frustration that feeling of justified rage. And we always think it's righteous indignation, even though it rarely is. But that's one way you can fake forgiveness, is just by bypassing it altogether. We can fake forgiveness by resorting to self-blame. That is, somebody sins against us, and we say, well, they shouldn't have done what they've done. But you know, it's probably my fault to begin with. Now, he, he probably does drink too much. My husband probably does drink too much. But, you know, I do nag a lot. And so it's probably my fault. Well, no, maybe your husband just drinks too much. When we continually resort to self-blame, and when we take it on our shoulders to blame ourselves for somebody else's sin, we abort and short-circuit the work of forgiveness. Because we remove, we remove the sin that needs grace. We can resort to self-blame. One thing we really, really like to do as believers is we like to fake forgiveness by pretending like sins are not a big deal. I just don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. It doesn't really matter. It's okay. It didn't hurt that bad when you cut my heart out and danced on it right in front of me. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Friends, I want to tell you something today. If the Word of God says that a behavior, an attitude, or an action is a big deal... It is a big deal. Sin is a big deal. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That's a big deal. Deception and lies and immorality, patterns of abuse, those things that the Bible labels as sin, those things are a big deal. And when we pretend like they are a, not a big deal, again, we short-circuit the work of grace that God wants to do in the person who sinned and in our hearts. You see in verse number 16 that the Apostle Paul wants Philemon to welcome Onesimus back, not just as a slave, but as a brother. He says, he says Philemon, you guys really have a new relationship. It's not just master-slave anymore, but it's about two brothers in the Lord, right? And then he says, he's not just your brother, but, but or not just my brother, but your brother in the flesh and in the Lord. Do you see that word? How much more? He's saying, Philemon, do you realize that God has been doing so much more in this than you could possibly understand? He's been doing so much more. Do you think maybe that God is working in the ways people sin against us to do more than we could possibly imagine in our own hearts? Here's, here's what I'm going to posit to you tonight. Take this sin here. This is a financial sin of some sort. There's a, a dollar amount or a shekel amount or whatever. There's, you know, whatever it was. There's a dollar amount to this sin. And if it hurts your wallet, folks, it hurts, doesn't it? But I know human nature enough to know that there are some of you that if you were carjacked on the way home, you would feel no particular animosity at all toward the carjacker, would you? Just because to you, material possessions, they're not, they're not that big of a deal. But if somebody said something about you behind your back that wasn't true, or maybe it was true and you just didn't want everybody else to know about it, 
you'd have a hard time dealing with that, wouldn't you? Because we're all different, right? You've probably noticed this dynamic in your marriage, even if you've never thought about it. There are some things that he can say to you that you're not allowed to say to him. Have you noticed that? And that's not just because he's sensitive, even though he's a man, he is sensitive. But it's because, it's because we are all wired up so differently that there are certain things that we take very, very seriously. And often it's the things that we love the most that when they are offended, that hurt the deepest. So there are some sins against you which are going to be relatively easy to forgive. But those are just going to be surface scratches. But there are going to be some sins against you that you're going to fight to forgive because they're going deep in your heart. But what if that's exactly where you need God to do His work in your life? What if God is going deeper through your struggle with unforgiveness than you ever would have chosen for Him to go? And what if He wants you to learn how to forgive and show the grace you've received in Christ? You do realize, I hope, that for the most part, Christianity is what happens in relationships. A big part of Christianity is what happens when people sin against you. Look in your Bible in the book of Colossians chapter 3. The book of Colossians is a letter that's written to the church that meets in Philemon's house. And I just want to show you this in Colossians chapter 3. How the Apostle Paul talks about the Christian life. Because I think for a lot of us, the Christian life is a life that just takes us to church. and Maybe puts us in some classes and puts us in some programs. But for the Apostle Paul, the Christian life is a life that puts us in relationship. And those relationships stretch us. Those relationships can hurt us. But those relationships are the opportunity to grow us into the image of Christ. Look at this, Colossians 3, 1. If you then are risen with Christ, seek the things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's a beautiful image. If you have been brought to salvation, if you've been brought to life, then, man, set your affections on heaven and pursue a heavenward life. Set your minds on things that are above, verse 2, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also appear with Him in glory. Hallelujah, Paul. Thank you. Wouldn't it be great if he just stopped right there without getting specific? But he's going to get real nosy later in this chapter. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked. Amen, Paul, that's all behind me. When you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts that can only happen in a relationship. Kindness. If you are a kind person, sitting on your couch, watching Netflix, there ain't nobody knows how kind you are. Right? Humility. 
meekness, patience. Oh, I know some of y'all are so patient. But the extent of your patience is just when my sermons run long. But you're not patient with people that get on your nerves, right? I mean, I'm not either. That's how I know how this works in your life. Bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against one another, just hypothetically, Paul says, if somebody, Odysseus, Philemon, has a complaint with one another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You see what Paul's saying? He's saying the Christian life is something that happens between people that are together. It's not just this private experience that I have between myself and God. It may be that, but it's not just that. Because it occurs between other people, people who sin against me, people who hurt me, people who mistreat me. And how do I respond to them? How do I respond to them? Paul's calling us to respond to them with grace. And that's why I think the third lesson we should learn from this text is this. You can do this. You can't avoid it. You can't avoid fighting for, unfor- fighting for forgiveness. You shouldn't fake it, and you can do this. But I wanted to put you know, a little subtitle under that. You can do this, but not really. At least not by yourself. Because it's not natural, is it? It's not normal. It's not ordinary. So how does it work? How does it work? This is what we want to get down to, man. Forget, you know, forget the, the theology of it. Forget the, 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 all, the psychology of it. Forget all of that. Just tell me how to do it. How can I leave the past behind me and move on? How can I lay the burden down? Wouldn't you like to be free from unforgiveness tonight? How can I be free? How can I be unchained? And how can I be unshackled? Well, what Paul does not do, he does not appeal to Philemon's self-interest. He doesn't say, brother, listen, this is killing you. you got to let it go. You're so stressed out you can't sleep. Your blood pressure's off the charts, dude. It's like 200 over 130. You're going to die if you don't let this go. He doesn't say that. Rather, Paul reminds Philemon of the grace that he has experienced so that he can show Onesimus that same kind of generosity and grace. In other words... Because of the good news of Jesus, I do not have to carry my sin to heaven. But because of the good news of Jesus that tells me I don't have to carry my sin to heaven, I don't have to carry somebody else's sin to heaven. That's the point of the book of Philemon. Look at what Philemon, or Paul tells Philemon. He says in verse number 18, he says, If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. He says, but if he's cheated you, I'm good for it. I'm good for it. Whatever the debt is, Paul says, I'll pay it. I will make myself responsible to absorb the blow that he has inflicted on you. Onesimus owes Philemon money. Y'all, debts don't just disappear, do they? The only way you can make a debt disappear is to transfer it to somebody else. Paul says, transfer it to my account. I'll pay it. I'll take care of it. I will make it good. To say nothing, verse number 18, 19 rather, to say nothing of you owing me your own self. And don't forget Philemon. 
Philemon, don't forget that just as Onesimus stumbled across my path and I led him to Jesus. Philemon, don't forget where you were when the grace of God came to you. And Philemon, don't forget the good news that I shared with you. And Philemon, don't forget how the Spirit of God brought you to life in Jesus. And Philemon, really what you are doing as I call you to forgive Onesimus, really what you are doing is not responding to him at all. Philemon, what you are doing is responding to the grace of God you have received in Christ. Y'all, the worst advice you could ever hear when it comes to forgiveness is to forgive and forget. It's the worst advice you could ever hear. It's thoroughly unbiblical. I mean, can you really forget? You forget the lies people tell you? Forget the way people have treated you? Do you forget being abused? Forget being the victim of somebody else's sin? Do you really forget that? I don't think that the Bible tells us to forgive and forget. I think the Bible tells us to forgive by remembering. Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 13, we just read it. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. How do I forgive when I stop responding to how somebody else has treated me and I respond to how Jesus has treated me? Then when I realize how he has treated me, the debt that he has paid for me, then I'm able to show that same grace to other people. Our God is a forgiving God. Now we say that, y'all. And we say that we believe in grace. But I have been so convicted this week in the book of Philemon, thinking about this debt, thinking about forgiveness, and thinking about grace, that I worry that we don't really believe that God is a gracious God. I know we say we do. I know we sing Amazing Grace and I know our chains are gone. I I know that. But I mean, I, I think that deep down in our hearts, where it really matters, if we could get down to what we really believe, I think a lot of us really believe that God really just doesn't care much for us and He keeps us at arm's reach and He expects us to jump through hoops to impress Him And if we ever blow it along the way, then He pushes us back and makes us start all the way over. And I think because we don't really believe God is gracious, we're not able to be gracious to other people. I think this is why we're so ungracious to other people. So unforgiving. So quick to carry grudges. So broken in the way we get along with one another because we don't really believe that God relates to us on the basis of grace. And so we don't relate to other people on the basis of grace. In other words, we have a hard time showing grace because we've not really experienced it. We've not really been transformed deeply by the grace of God. Jesus writes about this or talks about this in Matthew chapter 18. Now, turn there in your Bible with me. I don't think I've got this on the screen. I think it's too much. But Matthew chapter 18, maybe a little bit of it. This is the parable of the unforgiving servant. Peter comes to Jesus in Matthew 18, 21, and he says to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? That's impressive, right? Jesus says, bro, try 70 times seven. Now, he's not saying literally, Peter, 490 times, but then 491. Dude, all bets are off. No, what he's saying is, Peter, the forgiveness that I want to work in your heart is is immeasurable because it is unexplainable. And then he explains that with a story in verse 23 about two servants of a king. One king or or one servant owes 10,000 talents. 
talent would be equivalent to 20 years worth of wages. If you owe somebody 10,000 talents, I'm not good enough to do the math on top of my head. That's close to billions of dollars. And that guy who owes billions of dollars, this is like Lehman Brothers type stuff here, okay? He falls down before the king and he says, I can't pay it. Have mercy on me. Show me grace. Please forgive me. And the king says, okay. And the man's stunned. He's overwhelmed. But then when he leaves, he runs into another servant in verse number 28. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. 15,000. And seizing him, he began to choke him. And what's he saying to him? Pay what you owe. And then he pleads down, plead, falls down and he uses the same words, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When the other servants see it, they go and they tell the king, the master. And he says in verse 32, you wicked servant, I forgave you. All that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that he can't show mercy to somebody who's really barely done anything wrong because he does not understand the mercy that he's experienced. He doesn't understand the depth of his own sin and the cost of his own forgiveness and because of that, he's not able to show minor forgiveness to somebody. And then the parable ends with the unforgiving servant in jail. Why? Because unforgiveness is a prison. And it will take everything from you. Living a life that is devoid of the grace of God. Friends, our God is a forgiving God. This is part of... The very core of his identity as God. He says to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. He says, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The Hebrew word for forgiveness there in Exodus 34, 7 was one of my favorite Hebrew words because it's the easiest one to remember. It's the Hebrew word nasah. And it, it means to forgive, but really it means to lift away. And you can remember that easily because that's what NASA does, right? They lift things away. And this is the Hebrew word nasah, or NASA, right? God says that it's in my nature. It's in my nature to lift people's sins off of them. It's in my nature to pull people's sins, the burden of their guilt... Off of their shoulders. Now, when does God tell Moses this? Does anybody remember what happened a couple chapters before this? God had brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. He had shown His power and His mercy to them. Delivered them through the Red Sea. God brings Moses up on top of Mount Sinai and He's giving him the law. And all of a sudden, Moses and Joshua, man, they hear a party down in the valley, don't they? And Joshua says, man, it sounds like they're having a good time down there. Moses says, that is not a good sound. And he says, because what you hear is the praise band for the golden calf. And all those people were dancing around that golden calf like a bunch of naked drunk monkeys. And Moses, after the fact, is terrified that God is going to remove himself from the sinful people who have betrayed him. And God says to Moses, Moses, you don't understand. Because it is in my nature... To take that betrayal, 
to take that unfaithfulness and to take that sin and to lift it away from my unfaithful people. But here's the problem. The problem is that the God who says he forgives iniquity says I will by no means clear the guilty. So if he takes that sin, if he lifts it off, where does he put it? He brings it into himself. And it's at the cross where Jesus does what Paul says he will do for Onesimus. It's at the cross where Jesus pays the debt. And friends, it's at the cross where Jesus pays our debt. And it's not a hypothetical debt made up of imaginary sins. No, it's the real sins that we've committed against God. It's our unfaithfulness. It's our trying to rob God of His rightful due with our lives. It's our dancing around a million other golden calves. It is our real sin. And Jesus said, I will take it into myself. I will pay the debt so that you don't have to. And the Word of God says to us over and over and over again that if Jesus has done that for us, then we can do that for other people. That we are able to show that same kind of grace to those that do not deserve it because God has done that for us in Christ. Friends, if we believe that, we are going to be a forgiving people. Now that does not mean that forgiveness is easy. Sometimes it means that that forgiveness is a matter of obedience. And we have to pray for our hearts to catch up later. But it does mean that there's something in us that longs for healthy and true relationships. And that's what the book of Philemon is about. If you look in Philemon verse number 6. I'm going to have to get a cup holder for this pulpit. If you look in Philemon verse number 6, Paul says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective in the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. We see that expression, sharing of your faith, and we think that's talking about witnessing or evangelism. That's not what it means. It's talking about fellowship. It's the Greek word, in fact, the Greek word koinonia, which means to share. Paul says, I want you guys to share life together, the way God's people share life together. He longs for that himself in verse number 22. Prepare a guest room for me. Paul is looking for the day when he's back at Philemon's house. And Onesimus will be there. And Onesimus and Philemon are restored. And they're sitting around the table. And they're laughing and they're fellowshipping. Rejoicing in the goodness of God. And the restoring work of God. Paul can see that by faith. You know why he can see that by faith? Because he believes that God is able to do more than anybody would expect. He says that to Philemon in verse 21. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Philemon, you may not feel it now. This letter may not immediately make much of an impact. It may not make a ripple in the way you feel about Onesimus. But over time, I know that the same grace of God that changed Onesimus is going to transform you. And I want to tell you today, child of God, if you are struggling to forgive... If you still feel like you're carrying a burden that you can't get out from under, and if you still feel formed and deformed by the scars of somebody else's sin against you, God is able to do more than you think. And He is able to lighten that load. And He is able to take that burden. Because our Savior, who loved you and went to the cross for your sins, and who paid your debt at the cross, you believe that, don't you? You believe that our Savior went to Calvary. And there God transferred all of your debt into His account. And through His death, He was able to write paid in full over your books. You believe that, right? 
And you believe that when God looks at your account now, He sees that it has been paid totally, completely, and forever. And that you owe Him nothing. And as the old song says, the debt has been settled long ago. You believe that? Do you believe He also did that for their sin against you? And if He did, if He did, then our God can work that in your heart to them. Paul looks ahead to a day where there is fellowship. No guilt, no awkwardness, no embarrassment, no shame, no fear. Everybody's rejoicing together. Tonight, that's the day we're looking forward to. We're looking forward to the day when God's people are in perfect fellowship. And it would be something to go to heaven and have to face a bunch of people that you've been angry at for 50 years in the meantime, wouldn't it? But it's going to happen. But on that day, I promise you, you realize it wasn't worth it. You'll realize the joy you missed, the fellowship that God wanted you to have. And I want you to have it now. God wants you to have it now. And I assure you of this, no matter how you've been scarred, no matter how you've been hurt, no matter how you've been used, misused, or abused, those scars are not going to follow you there. And the only scars that are going to be there are the scars that He carries to forgive you of your sins and to heal the scars that you carry. So I want you to know tonight that you can forgive. You can forgive. The Lord can help you do it. But you know what that forgiveness really looks like? Here's what that forgiveness looks like. In fact, I wanted to give you ten commandments of true Christian forgiveness. But I only have five of them. And they're enough, believe me. We couldn't have handled ten of them. Forgiveness means thou shalt not think about it except in prayer. Forgiveness means thou shalt not talk about it to other people. Forgiveness means thou shalt not keep a record. Forgiveness forgiveness means that thou shalt not hold it over their head to manipulate or control. Forgiveness means thou shalt not get even. The Lord wants you to forgive and you can question is, do you want to be obedient through His Spirit and say, Lord, give me that gracious, forgiving heart? Gary and Shanda, can you guys come and play us just softly a few verses of an invitation? Sometimes the most shaping experiences in our lives are the sins that other people commit against us and the struggle that we have to forgive. But I know tonight that if you are a normal person, you've been hurt. And you've had a hard time handling it. But tonight, some of you need to bring it to Jesus. For good and forever. And say, Lord, I don't want to carry anger. I don't want to be the person I've become. I don't want to carry bitterness. Say, Brother Jesse, if I was to come to that altar right now, then everybody would know that I struggle with unforgiveness. If they know you, they probably know anyway. But what they'll know is that you're a human being living in a fallen world with hard relationships where God is at work to show you grace and to show grace through you. So here's what I want us to do right now. I want us to stand together. And I want to have all our heads bowed and all of our eyes closed insofar as possible. And I don't want anybody looking around. 
And I just want to ask you today if I can pray for you. Would you put your hand up and say, Brother Jesse, I have broken relationships that need to be mended. And I see hands that are going up. And I do want to pray for you. Thank you for being honest. Thank you for being honest. I can't assure you that you're going to leave here tonight feeling any better. But I can assure you that God is at work in you now. And God wants to make that relationship right. And He wants to use you to show grace. Let's pray together now. If you need to respond, if some have, the altar's open. Slip on out and bring it to the Lord. Say, Lord, you've been gracious to me. Lord, let me show grace to others. Father, Lord, our relationship's fractured. They break. We sin against others. They sin against us. God, I pray that you would so convict us of the truths of the Word of God about grace and forgiveness that we who are here and we who make up this church body would not be able to rest until we have done everything we can do to make our broken relationships whole and right. Help us, God, to forgive, to be like the father in the story of the prodigal son, to run to and run after those that have sinned against us and show them grace. God, I know some want to do that. God, they're struggling right now. Struggling. Help them, Father. Give them the obedience that they need. And God, let your grace make up the difference. And work a miracle. Do more than we can even pray for, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. While they play just a couple bars of this great old song, I surrender all. Would you surrender their sin against you to him? Say, Lord, I'm not going to carry it. I'm going to surrender it to you. Most of us would say somewhere along the way, we've surrendered our sin. We've surrendered our plans. We've surrendered our future. Would you surrender your anger? Would you surrender your unforgiveness? Would you surrender bitterness? Say, Jesus, I surrender it all to you.